Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Good Thursday morning to you. Mike McNamara in for a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. Joining me from uh, Texas is Tim Lynch. Tim, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Mac. Thank you. All right. Joining me from Kansas City is Will Cosentini. Will, how are you? Good morning. Thanks, Mac. You bet. Good. And uh, from uh, from uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, Jeff Kenny joins us. Jeff, how you doing? Good. Thanks. All right. The um, we're gonna kind of walk through the the, the brief that we've uh, uh, kind of been following the last few days and. Uh, and discuss uh, obviously the events in the news. The um, so just kind of general situation stuff. The news in the last twenty four hours from the region. Uh, Turkey held. Uh, this is from Al Jazeera. Turkey held its first talks with the Taliban. Um, the refugee thing is getting in the news uh, as Afghans attempt to flee the country. Hundreds of displaced Afghan families seeking food and shelter. Um, and these are all Al Jazeera headlines. Taliban planning an exclusive and inclusive caretaker government in Afghanistan is another headline you see. And then Biden vague on whether U.S. gave Taliban a list of vulnerable Afghans um, from Tolo, which is the Afghan news agency and, and uh, a news, the most popular Afghan web news website. It, it's pretty interesting because of what they don't put on that website. And so this is in order that these stories appear, you know, and just mind you, we all know about the events yesterday at the Kabul International Airport. Top headline, Ergodan says Turkey has held its first talks with the Taliban. Second headline, war displaced Afghan families need funds to return home. Third headline, Massoud and Taliban agree not to fight until the next round of talks. And the fourth headline is over 60 people killed at the Kabul International Airport. Now, mind you, that number is 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 pegged as much higher by other news organizations yet the uh most i guess prominent news website in Afghanistan is not covering that story at the top of the fold or by the hour as everybody else is which is just interesting to know um NBC news reporting uh 13 US service members and at least 60 Afghans were killed at the Kabul International Airport. MSNBC about an hour ago updated those numbers. Uh 13 US service members remains the same. At least 100 Afghans according to the health ministry um were killed in the attack. That number has been placed as high as 150. Uh, with a lot of people wounded. From CNN, the United States has vowed to continue the evacuation of American citizens and allies out of Afghanistan as U.S. troops brace for the threat of more terrorist attacks following two deadly bombings at the airport. From Reuters, Uzbek leader says he's in daily contact with the Taliban to ensure security along the border. From Reuters, World Health Organization hopes for an air bridge into northern Afghanistan to support refugees that have moved there in the coming days. Also from Reuters, uh, Australia ends its evacuations after the Kabul suicide attacks, as did Canada, as did Germany. From Richard Engel, who we followed a little bit, uh, evacuation flights out of Kabul International resumed just hours after two suicide bombers targeted the airport, killing more than 100. 
Meanwhile, the U.S. is bracing for more violence in the region. And then, um, now, if you're listening, uh, you can go to the All Marine Radio website. You can click on the read board, and you'll find a series of maps that we'll use as we discuss these things. There's five maps. There's a Twitter feed there. I'm not a Twitter feed. There's a Twitter video that I would recommend that you watch, um, which will give you an idea of the proximity in which it's belly button to belly button. Marines are dealing with Afghan civilians trying to get through the checkpoint. And when you see it, it'll, it'll make your stomach ball up in a knot. But but it's there, and I think it's important. Now, I can't – a lot of the, the reporting in the last 24 hours, people are saying it's, you know, it's this gate or that gate. But, you know, you, you really aren't sure, and so you have to take it with a grain of, of salt. The um, the next thing I'll, I'll just briefly outline is General McKenzie d- did a about a 28-minute press conference yesterday, and I'm just going to go through the notes that I took. Uh, two suicide bombers, right, does not mention SVB IED, right? There were ISIS gunmen there. He reported initially 12 U.S. KIA, 15 U.S. wounded in action, right? The the bombing happens at the interface point where Afghans are searched. No additional troops were, will be required at the Kabul International Airport. He talked about rocket attacks, that ISIS has that capability. He also talked about the threat for suicide vehicle-borne IEDs, exploding cars, if you will, right? Uh, that that threat is high right now. Uh, he talked about vests a little bit, and uh, and that, that that they were trying to create standoff at the gates, but it was very difficult. He also mentioned aircraft safety. That he that that it's the assessment of CENTCOM Intel that ISIS K does not that they believe ISIS K does not have a man pad, which is would be a shoulder launched. Um, anti-air missile, but obviously the fact that he was even mentioned that in the brief gives you some indication of the level of concern. And uh, yes, 24 hours ago, a little bit less than 24 hours ago, uh, he pegged that the number of people that have been flown out at 104, and that's United States allies, and I think everybody who's left the site. Um, if you flip over to the read board, um, I'll go through the maps that are up there that, that you know we'll refer to. Uh, as we talk, the first map number one is that side where the attack co- took place of the Kabul International Airport. Okay, you'll see the main going from left to right. You see the main gate. You see another gate that is not named, um, and then you see the Abbey Gate, and then you see the East Gate. What's problematic when you're looking at imagery of this area is, um, I I would think that the United States government has leaned on Google not to publish up to date imagery of um, of this area because the place where the Barron Hotel compound is is a piece of dirt and that is a pretty well developed area and so you see the Abbey Gate on map one you see where the, the general vicinity of where the, the one explosion took place and then the New York Times has the best story and I'll get to that in a minute about this but what they do is they show a gate that leads to a walkway that leads to the Barron Hotel compound, and that's where the second explosion took place. So that you see in map one. Map two just drills down a little bit, gives you a more, a little bit more clarity. Map three is 
um, graphics that I put on there to amplify the New York Times' own graphics and their satellite imagery that they obviously pay for. So you see the Abbey Gate. This is this was taken yesterday morning before the incident, right? And you can see, you know, you can see people in 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 the shot. So you see the Abbey Gate. You see uh, the walkway, and then you see it's very clear the Baron Hotel compound. So I think it gives you a better idea. The fourth map is drilled down, you know, even more, and then the fifth map is a pretty close up shot of what the Abbey Gate looked like, and this was this had to have been years ago. So. Anyway, uh, with that done, uh, I'll turn it over to Tim for the intel part of this. Okay, the uh, general situation in Afghanistan, outside of Kabul, Torkim and Spin Boldak gates, I have been told remain shut for commercial traffic. They're allowing Afghans with Pakistani visas through, but not refugees. Afghans with Pakistan, what that means is uh, not every Afghan has a passport. Somebody that has a passport was generally going to be a more educated, uh, uh, wealthier, uh, more urban Afghan, and they have to have Pakistani visas to come through the gate. And um, those people are being let through. It is my understanding. Concurrently with that comes Richard Engel with a picture from the Quetta gate that indicates there's about thousands and thousands of people stacked up there. And I don't think they're getting through. That's 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 what the report is. But there sure seems to be a lot of people there. I've been told by my my guy in Nagahar, there's nobody at the Torquem Gate. They've got that place pretty much um, uh, locked down. The other big news coming out of there Tim, is the Masoud. Excuse me, Tim. What about coming the other way? Is there trade coming from Pakistan through the, the only the only the only trade? Oh, thanks, Jeff, because I I'm sorry. The only trade coming through was as as it was yesterday is at Zaranch with Iran. That's that's they're, they're, they're trading fuel for dollars. Right. Uh, Taliban's got a bunch of dollars. Uh, they need fuel. Iran desperately needs dollars. And there's a booming trade going across the ranch. But as you remember, the ranch is isolated by a good swath of the desert of death. Though so it's not a place where refugees are going to be able to get to. Right. Unless so, they can again, just get for everybody, Zaranj is, tell everybody where it is. Southwest corner of Afghanistan okay. on the border with the Iran. Um, very nice city. Uh, uh, that was the first to fall to the yeah. Taliban, unfortunately. So, I mean, so that's we're the talking only about trade the, that we know of. We're talking about the northeast corner and then the southwest the corner. South, yeah, right? northeast so, yeah, southwest so they're corner. diametrically opposed in terms of when you look at the map. They're at different corners. Right. 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 Now the next big uh, uh, bit of information is the story about uh, 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 Masood, the son of Masood, the son of the line of Panjshir, and his delegation – Met in Parwan province with a delegation of the Taliban. Um, it's interesting that with the Taliban sent uh, one of their head of intelligence uh, in Parwan, a delegation coming out of uh, the Panjshir. That's going to be predominantly NDS, former NDS. That's work, right. what they did. So that's an interesting meeting of the minds. Most important, they agreed not to fight until they can uh, have a meeting and try to hash out the nature of the administration and what, what, how they're going to run the country. This seems to be, again, an indication that the, the fix was in greater than even Jeff thought. I, I, would, I, I, I may surmise, and this may explain why in Nimrod's on the other side of the country, um, a guy stepped aside that was an implacable foe of the Taliban, stepped aside and let him in. So we will see what happens with this arbitration between the Taliban and the forces and, and the representatives of the Tajiks and Uzbeks. Right. And Timmy, it's uh, 
it's significant that they're meeting in Parwan province because exactly. that's where Bagram is in Parwan. That's, that's exactly the- right. They're meeting in Bagram. I will bet you money. Right. Yeah. That's another st- st- thumb in the eye. But neither here nor there. Um, now we got to move on to what I mentioned three days ago, which is the consequences of not being able to get at an ATM or a bank. They remain closed. The Western Union offices have run out of dollars or, excuse me, run out of Afghanis. They are closed. So remittances no longer count. The only money coming in is going to be remitted to Pakistan and hawaled in to, to the people, which probably is a, a considerable sum. As a result, um, you've got uh, the inability of Afghans to purchase purchase the stuff that they need, which a lot of it came from Iran. A lot of it came from Pakistan and from Indians. There's a, there's, there's a, they're taking economic hits. The, of course, the Afghans can't, can't get at these, uh, um, um, these goods. Um, and so, you know, you've got uh, a high, a high, a high, you've got a gigantic financial problem that's affecting every area in the region. And the end result is the Afghans are not getting uh, access to the, they're soon going to run out of food and fuel and things like that. What they have in abundance is water and the Iranians desperately need water and Quite frankly, the Taliban, if they want to pump up their uh, poppy uh, thing, can can stick uh, can drain the the Helmand River long before it reaches the point where the Iranians have a uh, uh, aqueduct that sucks water out of there, which is just outside of ranch. So this is an interesting. There's a lot of politics that are go- taking place that are Central Asian politics, and and. Uh, Quite frankly, something has got to give quickly or you've got a gigantic humanitarian crisis. Um, Okay, so moving on to Greater Kabul. Right now, time on deck is 1851, so it's almost uh, 7 o'clock at night. Temperature, oh, that's me, pull up the right one. Temperature is 90 degrees. High tomorrow will be 102. Low will be 60 degrees during the night. Air quality index is, of course, fantastic because nobody's moving through that city. Normally, it would be horrible. So it's typical Afghan weather pattern for this time of year, which is brutally hot days, cool, enjoyable nights. One of the reasons why Afghanistan was, uh, excuse me, Kabul is a popular city is it's 5,900 feet up. So in the heat of the summer, it's the place to be. Um, And uh, moving on into Kabul, we've got reports Again, several reports that the that uh, U.S. officials gave the Taliban a uh, list of names of American cities and uh, citizens and green card holders in order to facilitate them getting to the airport, which, of course, they did not do. Um, the consequences of this list have yet to be found. The Afghans waiting by the gates, the ones that I've been in contact with, have said all the other uh, people that have been seeking visas have figured out they're not going to get them. And I don't believe you're going to see them assembled at the gates anymore. There's several of them are trying to make it to Pakistan. And I've got a, a tweet that came in last night from a, a, an Afghan woman in, in, in America who said, my family in Kabul says a local mosque just announced that the Taliban will conduct random house searches after 7 p.m. That's all that's all it said. Take, take that for for what it's worth. And now we move into. Uh, the Kabul airport incident, and I think we'll uh, we'll uh, hit the operations side and talk about that later. But that's pretty much a roundup of where we are in Afghanistan. All right, and then real quick on the operations side, 
outside of Afghanistan, and you know, we've all seen the reports of, of refugees uh, around the world and the outpouring of support for for in different countries. CENTCOM, uh, the biggest thing is no additional forces moving to Afghanistan, and really, um, again, with the exception of um, the attack yesterday. This is American military might, right, at its best. You know, we secured something, and, I mean, we can do this like nobody on the planet does this, right? And so so CENTCOM, the plan that they, they had, you know, to get over 104,000 people on this timeline, um, that's that's impressive, period. Um, and it's, it's in mid-stride, again, except for the security, you know, with the large exception of the security situation. Um, and again, uh, the other thing relative to operations, allies are departing. And, uh, according to General McKenzie, um, everything is still on track for us to be done with this by 31 August. So with that, with that said, I, I, I want to talk about a few things and, and get Jeff and Will, um, in here. First of all, um, you know, general thoughts on, 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 on the intel picture, the news of the last 24 hours before we go, get in, drill into specifics. Uh, Will, Jeff, any thoughts about, you know, the things either I said or Tim said? Yeah, item one, uh, I listened to the McKenzie press conference, and I don't know if this is meaningful or not, but he described the casualties as, I think, 13 uh, killed and 15 Americans injured and uh i maybe i'm oversensitive to that term but typically if you are injured due to combat you are wounded injured means non-combat and again i might be oversensitive but general mckenzie is a pretty technical thoughtful spoken guy so we started out i i remember a quote from a couple weeks ago that this was a not combat operation. Right. Don't know. Um, the, uh, the, the second thing I would say that hasn't penetrated to our brief, but of interest to me, um, I get the Wall Street Journal, and I actually read an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, Taliban, ISIS fight in a hidden war. It might be the first piece of real news journalism I've read on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in a long time. And I don't know if it's on their, their uh, you know, digital side, Mac, if, that, if you could put a link, because this really explains the internal fight between the Taliban and ISIS in Afghanistan. Um, so it was really good. So those are just two very broad impressions of what was going on and what i'll try what i'll try to do is um because they have the paywall um i subscribe digitally but i I normally copy and paste it to a word doc and then turn it into a pdf and throw it up on the website and wait for the wall street journal to sue me um for giving away their content so i'll do my best to get that up there all right all right jeff thoughts over yeah the uh well looking at the tactical aspects of this thing we really don't know what happened to cause all those casualties. I mean, we've heard differing reports and stuff like that, that it was uh, what we would call a complex uh, attack. And when we say complex attack, for folks out there who, who aren't you know, experienced in this, what it is is it means that there's a, um, 
either a vehicle-borne or a person-borne imp uh, improvised explosive device coupled with fire, direct fire, but also sometimes indirect fire from the outside where the enemy is trying to provide you with a dilemma of you're dealing with a guy with a bomb and at the same time you're having to deal with incoming rounds. And, uh, and those are the most devastating types of uh, attacks in the modern counterinsurgency realm that we experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan. So without knowing exactly what happened there, it's a lot of people to be killed um, by one bomb. And so I'm, I really think there's more to it than just a couple of bombs. But I have to say, the, uh, the main tactic of dealing with uh, that type of enemy tactic is uh, what we would call the entry control point. And, and, and that is what they, when you hear the word ECP, that's what people are talking about. And, and beyond the ECP, another tactic in counterinsurgency is a snap vehicle control point where you're, you have infantry that set up a control point uh, on the road somewhere in order to screen people, you know, in an unexpected fashion. But the key to both those control points is standoff, standoff, because when someone realizes that they're coming up on a checkpoint they didn't expect, or even one they did expect, if they have nefarious you know, intent and they have the wherewithal to do that nefarious intent, they're going to react. And you want to see that reaction as early as you can. And that's what we're robbed of here in the, uh, in the uh, Kabul situation. Because I think the original assumption was for the evacuation that the security beyond the uh, – the borders of the airport would be done by Afghan security forces still, you know, uh, operating under the original Afghan government. Instead, you have the Taliban. And so consequently, communications are different. Uh, trust is different. And you can't direct things that you used to be able to when we were when we had the uh, Afghan government, our main ally there in Afghanistan. So consequently, you're surprised. I mean, when you see, you know, vehicle control points to go in or leave a protected area, what we would euphemistically call going outside the wire, you know, you would have uh, you'd have where you had zigzag approaches, you'd have uh, blast walls and things like that, protection for the sentries and uh, and a way of talking to people one at a time so that uh, if if alert was heightened. It was as safe as possible, and, and the whole idea was to avoid a mass casualty event like the one we saw um, yesterday. And I don't think that uh, the Marines had the flexibility to do that, you know, in this situation. So uh, I'll just say that's what was going through my mind, you know, when I saw this, because we've all seen these things. You know, I mean, I, can, I got like in my, in my memory, I've got like a seven or eight, you know, examples where there were two IEDs. There was like a, a distractor IED in order to get your forces to get in a place that get hit by a bigger IED. These the the both the Iraqis, but even but especially the Afghans were masters at that. Um, you know, providing you with a, a dilemma, you know, instantaneously that uh, if you didn't, uh, unless you were fortunate, or unless you were you know mentally prepared, you know, it was hard to avoid being uh, becoming a casualty. Let's talk. Let's talk about ECPs and our experience with them. Um, uh, Will, um, you know, did you? You guys moved a lot. Did you do a lot of ECPs? I imagine you did a bunch of snap VCPs out west. But um, uh, let's talk. Let's talk about uh, this so people understand this whole idea of 
where, uh, you know, we are, where Marines are, and then this whole concept of screening. Uh, because I remember the first time in Ramadi when we got, I think the guy's name was General Sawani, and yeah. so, and he was a he was supposedly an Iraqi special forces guy, and he brought a bunch of his guys and said, "Hey, look, I I I can help you." And these guys they show up and they're standing at at checkpoints in Ramadi, and they're just standing there smoking cigarettes, right, with their AKs, and they're and and they look at the Marines and they say, "That car right there." And the Marines go, and they yoke these dudes up, right? And they've got money, they got guns, and they look like, how do you know? Like, come on, like, how do you not know? I mean, but for <laughs> us, right, I mean, we don't know the difference between an Iranian, an Iraqi, and a Puerto Rican. We're standing there stupid. I mean, it's a for- completely foreign culture. So those guys are so important to you because it's their home, right? They know it. And, and, and so... Normally they would man, and and I did a lot of this stuff in 2006 with the 5th Marines in Fallujah, right, when we would have recruiting things for the uh, Iraqi National Army, the Iraqi police, right, and and they would want to walk a suicide bomber with a vest in the middle of it and detonate it. And so, so, you know, you'd have Marines out there kind of in Overwatch. The Iraqis would be, be running it, but you'd have this serpentine, you know, thing that would go on. You would make them be... You know, twenty meters apart, they would they would come to a point and they would have to pull their shirt up to show you, you know, what was underneath it. And let me tell you, anybody who didn't do that, they killed them. They didn't have any problem with it because we had done it. As Jeff talked about, these lessons that we learned, I mean, we learned them the hard way. And in Iraq, they were good at this whole suicide bomber thing. So, uh, Will, uh, you know, Will and Jeff, your experiences with ECPs. And let me tell you, if you look, if you go to the read board and you click on that Twitter link. It is Marines belly button to Afghan belly button at this what what General McKenzie calls the interface point where somebody's getting searched, and it makes you sick to your stomach watching it that somebody would have walked up there and detonated in the midst of all that, and you see this concentration of Marines and this this huge number, this huge mass of humanity that's trying to get the fuck out of the country, and you're just looking at it going, shit. Anyway, Will and Jeff and Tim, thoughts on uh, on entry control point? So when, you know, my experience in Iraq is uh, February through uh, September in 2004. So it was a little bit more of the Wild West. Uh, in our FOBs in the West in particular, uh, there were no foreign vehicles that were allowed inside the FOB, period. Uh, and... For people to go inside and outside of the FOB, you know, other than uniformed Americans, it was one at a time, and we had a, a, a sally port system. Outer gate opens, one person comes in, uh, inner gate is still closed, the person gets screened, inner gate opens, that person goes in, inner gate closes, outer gate opens one at a time. And we could afford to do that because we weren't dealing with masses of humanity. Uh, our ability to do SNAP uh, vehicle ins- inspections outside was limited by the number of interpreters we had. Uh, so for three major maneuver elements, we had two interpreters total. That's uh, fucked. Yeah, and so we we actually, my command group uh, was, a, was really a combat platoon, and we ran some SNAP uh, 
checkpoints simply because I could speak a little bit of Arabic. But it was more, I was just trying to get an impression of what the traffic on the road was. Uh, at, at that time, um, you know, the, the suicide vest bomber thing was not big out there. The suicide vehicle uh, was gaining uh, some recognition, uh, but it was, it was back east in the more dense urban areas around Baghdad and Ramadi. Where we were in the West was not that was not that dense, and and I think what was going on out there was the infiltration from Syria in particular to get uh, money really into Ramadi and Baghdad and those places. Uh, they had plenty of munitions in the East. They didn't need munitions. They probably needed technical support, the enemy I'm talking, technical support and money. And so they weren't looking to cause a fight out in the West. Uh, so we didn't deal with a lot of that. Yeah, uh, yeah that's that, that stuff is all key for sure. The uh... Tim, you're on mute. Yeah. What's, again, what's what's interesting is that's your that's your standard. You've got uh, two examples of of uh, guys operating with Marines. That's their standard. As you look at that fourth map that you've got on your read board, Mac, which is a good example, a good clear shot of Abbey Gate. Those those maps that you that you have up there were probably current in 2006, 2007. Because the Abbey Gate was designed for ambulances. That was the ISAF base back at that time was behind that gate. There was always a European medical unit that had a hospital there. And I went through that gate only once. And that was taking one of my guards into uh, to the hospital in the middle of the night uh, in an ambulance that they sent from Abbey Gate to us. At the time, we were at Camp uh, Sullivan, which is a mile down the road. Now, as you look at that Abbey Gate, it's at a 90-degree angle to a paved road. The paved road ends at that gate. Behind that is that drainage ditch water area where all those people were. And as you scroll through, scroll through the maps, you can see that uh, in the updated New York Times graphic, still most of the area behind that gate is agricultural land, easily accessible by civilians. And I suspect that what you had were concentrations of people at that Abbey Gate who had walked in, coming through that uh, what's identified as, I think, Sukra Village, um, we we didn't call, we called it Hooterville, and then you've got the ones uh, the one that went off at the at the Baron Hotel, a hundred meters down that road where that road starts at the airport is a Taliban checkpoint which consists of Connex boxes and those guys standing on top of them looking at people. So there's no screening of anyone until that interface point which is identified as Abbey Gate, and you've seen pictures uh, and and of course those videos. That every time they open that gate, they're 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 face to face. About a good number of Americans are face to face with uh, thousands of Afghans as they try to lead in the ones that are they want to process. And what Timmy's talking about, and what Will was talking about, and what you were talking about, Mac. The key to this thing is having somebody who knows the cowboys from the Indians, because we don't. And uh, and so Will's is hamstrung in his experience because a lack of metargens or interpreters so that because if you can't talk to these people you can't execute this stuff i mean there, there's only so much you know that you can do but uh 
in our experience, in my experience, was first with as the operations officer of a MU, the MU Marine Expeditionary Unit, which has a battalion and a uh, uh, air squadron, helicopter squadron with a little bit of fixed wing, and it has uh, a logistics uh, uh, detachment. You know, it's about 2,200 people. We went into an area uh, that was uh, kind of a mixture of urbanization, like in Mamadia and South Baghdad, and also urban. So we did this SNAP VCP thing. We used our radio reconnaissance people who can listen in. And I found out they can they had assets that were, they were plussed up. They can listen in the cell phones. When you do a SNAP VCP and you have the interpreter, that's the first thing we found out. We don't have enough interpreters. Same thing like Will did. So we had to fuck, somehow make that happen. And, uh, you know, make to, to get more uh, interpreters and stuff. And the ones we got, they weren't really that good. I mean, not like later on in the war, like Will was saying, 2004, 2005, we were just kind of getting our shit together, switching from, you know, conventional ops to counterinsurgency. So when you do the SNAP VCP, people react. And it's the reaction you want to try and find out about. Because there's people coming with, uh, with the intent to attack. You throw a monkey wrench in their plan, they're going to come up on the net. They're going to get on their cell phones. And when they do, you can hear it. And then we did a lot of stuff, kind of like Will talked about months ago, the uh, the situation when he was in Gitmo, where they had this thing set up that made the the, the nefarious actors in the, in the crowd of rioters think that they were able to listen to them talking, even though they weren't. But it put a bee in their bonnet. I don't know if you, if you remember that uh, incident. And so we had a Huey up there. That when, when people would realize that they're coming up on SNAP VCP, they'd stop. And when they did, the bird is there. That's when I found out our Hueys don't hover anymore also, too, by the way. But, uh, you know, they would stop. At the same time, uh, General Furness, who was then a battalion commander, had his people, his recon people out there watching where that would happen and monitoring things. So the, the whole idea of the, of the control point is to um, – to give yourself as much flexibility to deal with an enemy reaction as you possibly can, with the enemy, you know, the enemy intent to cause, uh, you know, malicious harm, and uh, and and that's the whole key to the thing. I'll tell you, it's what made me think that the only way we can win this thing. My first experience doing that was the Iraqis had to be the ones doing it because, you know, we would never be able to call it a win until they were defending themselves, and. Uh, yeah. And, and so consequently, you know, I became an advisor. But that's the uh, the whole key to this thing is is having at least a modicum of trust with those people who are seeing what's coming. In this case, I think the way they originally assumed this thing would go in Kabul would was that the Afghan National Army and the police that they had there would be the ones doing what the Taliban's doing now. And instead, they got the worst people on earth as far as like in America out there, you know, the Taliban. Well, that, uh, that's another good good setup from, from Jeff, because having Afghan interpreters was not an issue here. They had plenty of Afghan interpreters. The report I received from my Kabul fixer, the one who got to Turkey, was that his two brothers could have gotten through the gate at a $5,000 a piece paid to one of those interpreters standing on those uh, uh, standing outside on, on top of those, uh, um, those, those damn barriers screening people in. I don't know that that is true because the mechanics of trans, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's true, but this is what he told me. And of course him being a friction, he told his brothers, pay him 10,000 bucks. That's no big deal. That's typical Afghani. So we had plenty of interpreters up there, chaotic situation, no standoff stuff that normally we would never accept. 
and possibly um, uh, our own interpreters adding to the problem by uh, demanding bribes in order to get get right. to the agenda. It seems to me that that if you the, the plan would be okay and well coordinated for the internal security that's where the marines are the final screening we coordinate with the external security to do an initial screen and then we coordinate with them how many people they're going to allow through that external yes. gate to the internal gate so that we never have masses of people we're never overwhelmed and then we can regulate the flow of people also to regulate how long it takes to get through that physical screening to the visa screening to the serial building to put on the airplane and yep. the breakdown here and i think jeff is accurate in the original plan we anticipated having people that we could communicate and give orders to and control i.e afghan security forces and so the breakdown in the plan is we don't have that external so now we're relying on the Taliban to do that. They're not going to do that. So now we're faced at the internal screening point with a mass of humanity right. that our procedures are not set up to deal with. And let me and just when we uh, say, let me let me uh, ask you a question. So why? I mean, we would not. I mean, we would need a a, a thousand Iraqi um, army guys who are looking to make some money who want to leave. To stand on these outer cordons and regulate flow to to that inner site, I, I mean, it's I, to me, it's like that's not that's impossible point, if we if we yeah. and again, what is the coin of the realm? Cash, all right. Yeah. We will pay you money and a lot of it to come work for us. And you're, what you're going to do is you're going to control flow into the ECP. I I, right. I don't again. Yeah, maybe there's a great maybe there's road, a great bro. maybe there's a great reason they couldn't generate that, but without that. Fuck, man. I mean, let me just tell you, if, when you watch this video that's on the read board, the Twitter video, it'll make you want to vomit. It's, I just yeah. got to say, I just got to say one thing, and that is if you did that without an American out there supervising those guys, their performance is going to be zero. So that doesn't give you uh, adequate screening. And not a, not a, not, well, not did, for a did Timmy put an American out there? But you, no, that's all I'm saying. Right? I mean, we have that, gr- we have green we have green berets and soft guys. That's what they fucking do, right? Yeah, uh, that's what they say they do. One caveat that's different though. than what they do. One caveat on this though is uh, when we did our stuff, the whole point was to catch guys and kill them. This, the whole point is the main mission is to get people through and and get them flown out of there. It's like uh, it's still a combat mission. It's just that the you know the uh, the overall uh, you know, the higher intent is, is vastly different. Yeah, but but, but to, to us on the ground, Jeff, it's not, right? Well, because you're going to have masses of people coming, it, it's a little bit different. And the, the big difference, you're right, the big difference is the fact that our enemies are, are providing security, you know, that, that, that was supposed to originally be ANA and maybe, you know, a mixture of the uh, different flavors of police they have up there. And, and Timmy is right. There'd be an American advisor you know, who would be there saying, uh, you know, hey, this is fucked up. That's fucked up. And they'd probably do a pretty good job because right. usually when we're with them, right. they do good. And and, 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 and if they're – Not after abandoning Bagram like that. Well, wait a minute. Yeah. No, no, no. But if we're paying if we're paying them and we're taking them out of the country, there's an incentive to do good work. 
And I'm just uh, saying. Taking them out of the country part, I agree. But they're I'm not just, taking but, those guys out with them. But they could have, though. That we know of. They could have, yeah, though. Okay. That's my okay. point is that, look, you don't have to be a genius to say, okay, how do we – this is unacceptable, okay? And, and it's where we are today. But, again, as this thing goes on and we sit here for longer and longer, the, the probability that, that what happened yesterday is going to happen goes up and up and up every day. Okay, so what capability can we generate here locally that, that is fully within our control that we can at least put something out there that is better than this shit sandwich that we've been handed? And that's my point. Will? Uh, I, 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 would also, I would also say, you know, this, this uh, when you see that Twitter video, it's a very uh, unsophisticated, untechnological approach to screening. Uh, and... You know, I don't know what it takes to get TSA equipment in there. And I don't know what the throughput is uh, on that. But the idea that, and General McKenzie said it, I think, three times in that press conference. You know, you're a breath, you're in someone else's face, you're on, you're touching other people. Um, We don't do that in American airports anymore. We send them through a device. And to, and to say that that's not possible here, uh, and, and again, I, I, I'm not second-guessing, but I'm saying you would think we could have a more sophisticated uh, approach to this. When you, when you see that initial thing, look, maybe we planned on having A&A on the outside. Whoops, we got Taliban. Maybe we planned on them regulating the flow so we only dealt with a few at a time. That's not the situation anymore. Uh, and the idea that we're just going to brute force it and have Marines intermingled uh, as close as they are, you know, we got a lot of technology. Right. All right. Let, I, I want to talk about um, experience with suicide bombers. My experience w- with Vest is guy's got a dead man switch in his hand, right? His controller, his handler, and these guys are handled because they're weapons, right? They're normally high. My experience is they're, they're high in drugs when you read, you know, the, the intelligence stuff that we would get. Um, and, and they're handled very, very deliberately. The pin gets pulled, and they depress that dead man switch, and they walk into where they're going to do it, right? And then when they get to where they're supposed to be, they let go of that switch, and they explode. Same thing normally happens on a vehicle. Dead man switch on the steering wheel, right? The, the pin gets pulled. You have that thing depressed, Right. Uh, and then when you're ready to unleash it, you let go of the steering wheel and it it detonates. If you're shot and killed, normally you'll let go of the uh, steering wheel and it'll go off then. My, that's my experience with both vests and, and vehicles. Uh, you guys, anything, anything yeah, you want I had, to add to that? I had we had a dramatic uh, um, incident with a guy with a suicide vest. We were trying to use the Iraqi army to stand up the Iraqi police force in the area called Baghdadi, Dulab, and um, Juba in the, there by, on the Euphrates River. And uh, the police chief was a guy we called Colonel Shaban, and he was part of the tribe that's down there. That's the Al-Ubaidi tribe. And uh, they tried to kill him. by They got a kid who was about 30 years old. He was wearing what we call a man dress. He had a Oakland Raiders jacket um, with a suicide vest underneath. And this is in May of uh, of uh, 2006. 
they drove him down in a, in a, in a like a little motorboat from Haditha down to uh, or east to um, to uh, Juba, put him ashore, and he was supposed to go find Colonel Shaban and detonate himself and kill him. And we were having like a lunch a luncheon in this other sheik's house. Well, the luncheon we finished it. We went back to the headquarters, and this kid came walking up the street. Now let me tell you. Um, he was intercepted by the sheik who had, who hosted the lunch. They had like a hand-to-hand fight. It turned into a Glock fight, and the uh, the sheik and his brother and his brother-in-law killed the suicide bomber, and uh, before he could detonate himself. But what you described, Mac, is exactly the setup he had. He had a bodacious suicide vest and everything like that. The uh, and then uh, EOD wouldn't uh move the guy out of the house so they uh they detonated him right there in the sheik's house um and uh it took three detonations to get rid of all the stuff so it did a job on the on the sheik's house but uh my point is this that the guy was drunk he was drunk and he was high and the reason is because you know these people are they're, they're masters especially in iraq at um at manipulating these people who they have as suicide bombers to do this stuff. But the, the fact is that, you know, I'm always, I always relate it to like the sappers they had in Vietnam. These guys who were like, basically like suicide bomber, you know, th- that would, uh, in the wave attacks that happen up along this DMZ, they'd have this sapper thing. But also I'm thinking about the Japanese that these were, and none of them was uh, impeded. It seemed like by uh, drugs or anything, but the, this in this counterinsurgency fight with the Iraqis and then later the Afghans, the human factors, as General Allen used to say, the human factors of being a suicide bomber were expertly uh, maneuvered by the, uh, you know, by Al Qaeda, by uh, by Zarqawi's guys, and then later on in, in Afghanistan. And that was my experience. I remember thinking, how the fuck they? Get? And then when we were talking to Sheikh Basim, the Sheikh who did it. The kid was drunk. He was like throwing up as they were fighting. You know, he got his. They, they all have Glocks, and they start shooting each other point blank range. And uh, you know, I'm thinking. And I remember thinking for the first time, what's in the? You'd think we'd think about it before, but it was like, what's the mindset of a guy who's doing that? He, he's got definite advantages, but the disadvantages, the fact that he knows he's first hours away, then minutes away and then seconds away from oblivion you know the uh my, my experience in afghanistan was that uh suicide bombers were like cockroaches you never saw just one so normally in the in the 2006 2007 you would get waves of suicide bombers that were that were normally let off in order to facilitate getting teams of gunmen into someplace high where they can start unleashing, for instance, on the American embassy and ISAF headquarters in 2010, I think it was. That was an interesting time. The ISIS, ISIS suicide bombers normally, every as I as I read in the past, they've they've hit the hospital, they've hit a couple other things. They come in pairs with gunmen, right? And one goes, then the other one goes, and there's a lot of shooting in between. And the gunmen are not suicidal; they uh, they exfiltrate. That was my experience with in Afghanistan, specifically Kabul, where the only two people doing the suicide bombings were either the Haqqanis or ISIS. And yeah. ISIS happened after I was gone. And either either the time frame, Mac, when you were in there with General Furness, 
in Afghanistan or right after when General Turner was in there, not in your area, but north there in Musakala, they had uh, a series. They had two or three suicide bombers in a, in two vehicles disguised as police vehicles try to uh, kill um, Wally Koka, the uh, the you know famous Musakala police chief, and uh, the the vehicles. Because what Timmy's saying is true. The vehicles were nothing but huge car bombs. They were stolen vehicles. They had the seats were made with Semtex. They were carved out of Semtex. And the idea was to attack Wally Coco with the suicide bombers and with, you know, small arms during a meeting. And when the Marines boarded him, I mean, they were just right next door. They they were looking for that QRF to come to Wally Coca's rescue. When they did, the plan was to set off the two V-bids, vehicle-borne IEDs, and kill a lot of Marines. But it didn't work that way because Wally Coca fought them off to a certain extent. And the Marines, you know, they monitored it, but they were – they were the Marines up at that time, and I think it was uh, when either, uh, either Paul Kennedy, General Kennedy, or General Eric Smith was – in charge of that northern area we call Tripoli, where you guys were down in what we call Guadalcanal. Yeah. The um, just a couple things. Um, you know, uh, Jeff talked about complex IEDs uh, in Iraq. I mean, they were absolute experts at creating a distraction. They'd normally test you a few days before they did it, maybe once, maybe twice, to make sure w- see where the QRF was coming from, and also your reaction to machine gun fire, mortar fire. And so there would be a distractor, and uh, and so they were absolute experts at it. And um, and so one of the things that that jumps out at you is normally a a vest, um, a suicide bomber, is not going to kill fifteen people. And this is this. So the initial report was twelve killed, fifteen injured. Right, what we would call wounded. Right, um, that's a pretty big um that's a pretty big bomb okay or there's another explanation to it so whether right. it's small arms fire and then the other thing you see at the hotel right it, it, i mean it's described as a single explosion and it's not described as you haven't seen pictures of a of a vehicle that was blown up so an svbid so i'm not sure how you get to over 100 casualties so that those are kind of question marks that that we have um, in this whole thing, like, uh, was it then gunmen that opened up? Um, and you know, in Iraq, they got so sophisticated at it. They would, you know, they, they would get the first one near you. And for the really well-planned one, they would wait for the first responders to come and they would wait till they would, they would wait till there was this huge congregation of, of whether it be family members and first responders, and they would blow one or two more. And you're just, it's just like you've got to be kidding me, man. This is literally hell on earth. And so, so again, so so questions uh, about the numbers that we don't, we don't really have answers to. I wanna I wanna um, I wanna shift and and ask all of you um, your thoughts. Will we see more of this? Yes. Well, yes, and and there's reporting. When they report, we think we have this number of vests. My experience was they're talking about shahids. They're talking about bombers, not physically vests, because on this unfortunate circumstance, they don't need to be wearing a vest. It's 105 degrees out. They could be towing a tote bag behind them. So that's that's another permeation 
that makes this specific situation uh, a more more tragic because they don't need to, to disguise themselves and try to walk in with a big bulky thing on. They can have their daggone uh, bags all their lifelongs, you know, in, in a tote bag or in a big suitcase. I just wanted to point that out. And I, I do believe ISIS, ISIS is being blamed for this. I have no reason to think that's not true. They're not going to go to this kind of length and extra, uh, an effort just for two incidences. That's their, that takes effort for them to get their people in Kabul, get situated, and um, and we'll have to see. If we don't see any more, it's because the Taliban got onto them before we did. Got it. Will? Yeah, I mean, if if you believe that ISIS is not in line with the Taliban, and the Taliban believes they need to control ISIS, I there might be a little reckoning inside the Taliban chain of command that allowed this to happen. So that may tighten up some security, but ISIS has really got nothing to lose out there. Um, this, I think, is a huge, huge success for them. Uh, and what, what you know, I'm just trying to think through, if they've got more sophisticated weapons, they wouldn't have gone with this one first. Um, right? Because it just heightens the alert. And obviously there was there was chatter out there because uh, what was it? Today's Friday. I think on Wednesday, right? State Department said imminent threat, leave the airport to all the Americans that were there. So obviously they've been chattering. We have, a, we have some sort of intel feed uh, on them. Um, I damn sure think they're going to try again, and I'm sure that they're doing everything they can to get uh, service air missile if they can get one. Uh, you know, if they can buy a stinger that we gave to the Mujahideen in 1979 or 1980. They'd love to bring down a, a you know, C-17 or a 747. Um, yeah. Uh, the Chinooks the that got shot out of the sky. Yeah, by RPGs. Yeah, by RPG, by volley, well, volley fired RPGs, and so that's the biggest, biggest uh, casualty producing uh, incident, after, bigger than this one right. that happened in 2011 uh, when the seals, uh, a Chinook got shot down and 30 some of them got killed. Right. Yeah, and there was a lot of talk about that being some kind of setup and whatnot, and I think it is more easily explained. For the reason I, I I originally thought they weren't going to leave Kabul. Kabul's in a bowl. There's only certain routes out of Kabul or Bagram into the south and southwestern areas. They've got to go through passes, the same passes the Soviets went through. And I think that they habitually took fire from those passes. And at Extortion 17, they just got lucky. Yeah, but th well, that wasn't the first time. I mean, the Taliban know the passes that helicopters have got to go through because the terrain can't change. And at well, extortion seventeen, I think they were just doing the same pass. Ex at the same explain time what the extortion time. seventeen is, please. Extortion seventeen was a call sign for the uh, task force one hundred and sixty helicopter carrying, I believe, it was SEAL Team six members on some type of raid uh, from Bagram down into the uh, south southwestern portion of the country. Got it. Lots and lots of talk about that, but I think it's I think the simplest explanation was. Just like with the, the lone survivor incident, they got lucky. Although the lone survivor incident, they were close enough that it was didn't take luck. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, 
these these birds are all going into one place and coming out in one place. Right. I know. So like, that's what I'm saying. It's more like Mogadishu than it is, uh, you know, Mogadishu in 1993 than it is like that. You can only imagine the amount of surveillance that yeah. is that is adjacent to the flight path, right? I mean, the, the oh, amount yeah. of – I mean, uh, we're – I don't know what we're using, but, I mean, that is – that is big. That is catastrophic. Big stuff, and you know, low technology. You know, whatever. I, you know, we we have no idea. Well, but, but. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm predicting there's going to be something every day until we're out of there. And I think they're going to try and get out on the 31st. They're going to pull all stops to get out. And I'll tell you why. Because like, whenever there's a crime, you always, I mean, the the, the you know judicial system is always qui bono, who benefits, right? So I think what are the, who benefited from this thing yesterday? The Taliban benefited from this thing yesterday. Like our and I and I think our people know it. And the reason I say I think our people know it on the news last night, you hear generals and stuff saying it's in the Taliban's best interest for us to get out of there without you know being harmed. No, it's not. That's not necessarily in their best interest. What they're looking for now is cred, and some of the stuff you brought up earlier. Mac and Tim, actually, especially Tim, about all the things that are going on with uh, Masood's people recognizing the, you know, we'll see which government stands up and everything. They're trying to get as much street cred as they can for when we're gone. And we are going. And they're going to do that by trying to embarrass us as much as they can before we leave. Let me so let, let me give you di- let me let me give you a different take. Right. All right. And and and. And I I'm think, not finished, but go well, ahead. No, right, and 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 I think, and this is what Will was alluding to a, a few minutes ago when he said an internal discussion among the Taliban about this stuff, right? We've got the country, we own it. The question is, how will we govern, right? Because if the if the Americans decide to put it to us financially, like they've done to Iran, right, we will have a civil war because of the things that Timmy described when he talked about inflation, lack of hard currency, not being able to buy food, not being able to buy gas. This thing will spin into civil war. And because, again, the Taliban don't have the ass to, 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 to have a heavy hand across the country. They just don't have enough bodies. And so, so to me, do they, in fact, benefit by, no. by allowing this, right? And as, no. we, as we've talked about, there is... You know, the Taliban is not a monolithic organization. Different people. So you show up, Jeff. You're an Al You're an ISIS K guy, and you have a shit ton of money, and say, "Hey, do you remember our deal? Here you go." And and we look the other way, and that's a business deal. And I say, "Fuck it," because I'm still pissed, and I'm not dancing to the tune, right? That General Kenny is talking about. Hey, we need to help the Americans get the fuck out of here. We have what we want. Now we got to govern this thing. And we don't need to make them any more of an enemy than they already are. We're going to need them financially. So I think it's I think I think it's a different. You can finish your point, but I think it's an I, interesting you discussion. Think, you think that uh, that we're not going to have any more attacks? So I think we are going to have. Oh no no no! I, I I do I do. But it's not in the Taliban's interest to, for that to, to allow ISIS to do that. They're fighting ISIS. They dro- they dragged the head ISIS guy and eight ISIS inmates out of that prison and shot him in the head last week. I yeah, think this not- is. About if it's ISIS who did this thing uh, yesterday? No, no, no. I I don't know that. But it is, if it is ISIS, they benefit because they are showing to the whole world the Taliban can't even control the stinking Kabul, uh, uh, and they've been bitter, bitter enemies. In unless there's some kind of alliance between the two of them that we don't know about, 
I don't think that that's that's much likely. But but the Taliban aren't benefiting from this. They're the guys who are well, desperately trying to get some money. Can, 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 can we hit another side of that, though? I believe that if ISIS is painted as the greatest evil, uh, when when I listen to General McKenzie, he didn't say our partners the Taliban, but he almost did. And yeah. the idea that that if ISIS is the greater enemy, that we would be willing to cooperate with the Taliban to hunt down ISIS in Afghanistan, I think it's a huge benefit to the Taliban. But we've already done that. We've been doing that in Kunar for years. I just want to hit so, pause for a second. Could, could Timmy, could you and Jeff, because you seem to know the most about ISIS here in ISIS-K, right? The Islamic right. State of Khorasan Province. Could you explain to everybody what the what the fuck this is? When do they start? Who are they? What's the agenda? Right. Khorasan's like the Arab word for Afghanistan. And they've been calling it that for years. You know, the like Al-Qaeda. You know, they call it Khorasan. The, uh, the you know, the to me, the ISIS, what ISIS is, it's because they perceived they're a lot of people in ISIS now used to be in the Taliban. They used to be in Al-Qaeda. Or they chose not to join those two organizations because they thought that they had softened and that they consider themselves to be the pure jihadists against the great Satan. And uh, so it's it's if you're trying to hide your culpability and you're the Taliban, it behooves you then to say, yeah, there's these uh, ISIS K guys out there. We just can't control them We're we're locked in a battle with them ourselves. And it's true. They have fought each other. But uh, I think when it comes to choosing enemies, they're going to choose us as an enemy before they're going to choose one of their guys. You know, I mean, not always, you know, because, you know, they, they fall out all the time. But uh, I think eventually right now, all of them are looking just this is so humiliating for us, you know, that uh, it's almost hard to bear. You know, the whole thing of us dealing with the Taliban and hoping that they'll help protect us and then fooling ourselves and saying, well, it's in their benefit to, you know, to take care of us. I don't think they may look at it that way. I think if you work in D.C. for the White House, or you work for, you know, the Pentagon, it, it maybe it's in your interest to say that it's in their interest. But I disagree. Right. They hate Tim, us. All right. Timmy, thoughts on uh, or just any any further amplification of what ISIS-K is? Yeah, I, I explained a couple of days ago where they came from. They originally started as a TTP, Pakistani Taliban, driven out of the Khyber Agency by Pakistani Army, given the permission to stay in Octan, uh, a District by the locals. And over the years, they gained power. They started battling. Uh, they, they were left alone because they would go across the border and mess with the Pakistanis, which the NDS liked. They then gathered more power, gathered more adherence because they're not do abundant Muslims like the Taliban, they're more like Salafist, Salafist, right. and that's the, and they're they're now all mobbed up with the with the uh, the the Salaf Salafi. Sal, I got that wrong, but they're no. they're they're bound up with it. That is Timmy Salafism. Tell them what Salafism it is. is a is a is a uh, interpretation of Islam that's a little bit more of the mystical. It involves lots of dancing, growing your hair long. They have peculiar traditions that the Dua Bundy traditionalists don't like. Yeah, that's one of them. All right. So let, let me let me throw some let me, let me throw some, all, to, all right, let me throw some data. Founded in 2015. Yeah. Uh, disaffected Pakistani Taliban. Um, they talk about what you guys just talked about. Um, 
have no regard for international borders. Uh, they see a territory transcending states like Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, let's see. All right, so so it's 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 its own Pakistani origin and relatively recent in terms of ISIS uh, organization, and that's who we're talking about. With with the Muhammad tribes in Afghanistan who are not Duabunda either, so that's how they end up in Kunar and up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I do believe that they 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 are going to remain at odds with the Taliban. And I don't and I don't think that the Taliban necessarily benefits from increasing our humiliation, but I don't know. Right. The one thing I do know are is that every as as uh, aircraft launch to the north and bank out over uh, over Afghanistan, um, the launch points, the, there's not many launch points in those mountains from which you could track and shoot down an aircraft. And, you know, that we're watching those points because the rest of it's just mountains. You can't get stuff up there. Right. So the, I don't believe we're going to see a man pad threat, even if they had one, because the ones we gave Iran wouldn't work now. They 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 would have quit functioning long ago. They the hell they got to have batteries for that matter. You mean the ones we gave the Afghans in the 80s? Yeah, yeah. Th- right. Those things need to be stored correctly and maintenance. And I don't I don't think they're functional now. Got it. All right. Um, as as we kind of wrap this thing up, um, thoughts on. Um, I mean. I don't think this surprised any of us, right? When you're in a static position and you're dealing with, you know, right, we've, we've evacuated 104,000 people. We've seen the crowds around the airport. When you're in static positions and you're vulnerable like this, I don't think anybody's surprised that this happens. Um, is there anything they can do, right, to, to, to protect themselves? What, what would you expect to see happen today that – that didn't happen yesterday, assuming that we're going to continue the evacuation. Will? Well, what, let me let me ask you, what would you do to protect yourself in that situation? We all know what you need to do, but they're not going to be able to do that, which yeah, is to punch gonna... out and give yourself some space. Well, if what, Tim, what's the what's the distance from that contact point where the Marines were to the Taliban checkpoint? Three hundred meters. Three hundred yeah. meters. Yeah, I mean, I I sense that that there will be some physical, more physical infrastructure put in place to just limit the surface area of people. Uh, so that instead of, and that one picture on Twitter, what's that, about 20 feet wide? Right. You know, do you cut it down to 10 feet? Do you cut it down to 5 feet? Now, what you're doing is a math problem. It reduces your throughput considerably. And, uh, and, and, you, and, and that's interesting. And that's what you have to accept because, you know, for us to embrace this throughput, it implies this security situation and, and we simply can't have it. This is as good as we could do if we, you know, if we were going to say we need to create something with that's more secure, you know, and, and, and that picture that you see in that Twitter feed yeah. and of the other a, thing a Marine standing toe-to-toe with Afghans, you know, it's, uh, you just can't yeah. put them in that situation. And don't don't forget that that so we took uh, we took the battalion off of the ship and we said, OK, you're going to set up a control point. They didn't do training on how to deal with thousands of people that they can't communicate with that are panicked, that are massing to come through there. So the Marines on the ground came up with a lot of those procedures 
that you saw, and they were doing field expedient. And at that point, everyone is mission focused. We got to deal with these people. We got to get them through here. We got to get them screened. We don't like it. This is how it is. Uh, so now you're going to get you know, ECP 2.0. Um, you know what? Maybe we don't. Okay, let me ask you a question. What? Well, what about all the experience? I mean, we guys like yeah, us. How do you train to do so? So. So here's my experience. Well, no, I, no. Is there any of that experience that that's still in uh, these these companies? Less right. than you think. Right there, it's at the maybe the company gunny, probably not the company commander. Right, right. It's in the field grade, and and uh, the fifteen year guys and above. Right, right. Uh, we're and, young core. We're young core. It keeps turning over. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and even people, company commanders. Think about it. I was a company commander with uh, with nine years in the Marine Corps. So go back nine years from today. That's 2012. That guy got commissioned. So the I odds. Was, I was a company commander 19 years. <laughs> but Jeff, because I'm old. I don't know if anyone's ever reminded you. You're old. <laughs> I knew. I heard that somewhere. Yeah. So the the ability to actually train for this. Uh, you know, we we did riot con- control training before we went to Gitmo, and then we had to deal with riots, but it was nothing like we had to deal with. And then, interesting, the battalion that relieved us got to watch us deal with riots, and they were it was like a profound experience for them. Although they'd done riot control training, uh, the ability to simulate masses of people coming at you that you've got to be able to deal with is really hard to do. Right. And so those guys improvised. And I'm telling you, I think they probably improvised absolutely as best right. as yep. they could. Absolutely. With the mission constraint of we're going to move a hundred thousand people through here in 10 yeah. days. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I, I created this decision-making class, um, uh, years ago when I was at IOC. And one of the things I used to tell people is, you know, everybody's very critical of, of decisions. But I will tell you the reason that it, it merits you investigating the nuances of what went on there is because if you were there, you would have probably done the exact same thing, giving the same circumstances. What did they know? When did they know it? What were they given? And what was the mission? Normally, they're doing the exactly the right thing. Right. right. The, exactly the right thing. Now, again, it changes when somebody says, OK, look, we're no longer going to keep this thing open. You know, we're going to we'll be content if if instead of 10,000 a day, you know, or 15,000 a day, if we do 3000 today. OK. And so this is what's going to happen at the at the ECPs. So right. uh, but again, you can see the impossible situation that 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 the security element is put in as they attempt to screen people with no outer cordon, with no outer cordon. All right, final thoughts. Um, Timmy, final thought? Well, in, in uh, wherever there's a, a, a vacuum of power, uh, somebody's going to fill that void. And because of the unorganized nature of this operation, uh, as well as they did, it was still unorganized. You have this Operation Dumkirk. And this is a massive thing of which I'm only a little bit part, but we've got people all from from general officers on down 
trading information about escape routes, safe houses, who to contact, and and they're, they're looking for ways and email addresses to get these interpreters and, and P2 visas processed. And I've got several emails of of uh, that are leading into the State Department um, to include in Peshawar and in, uh, not, excuse me, not in Peshawar, in Karachi and in Islamabad. So they've, as everybody that I've been in contact with has told their applicants to clear out of the airport yesterday. I don't think you're going to see very big crowds here today. I don't think they're going to process probably anybody today. If, if, if they do, it will be VIPs only. I believe they're going to go hard because they got no other choice. And, um, this thing's going to wind down. I believe we'll be out of here in a matter of uh, matter of days, and the fight will go on to try to get those who are actively being hunted by the Taliban out. And I will leave you with this final message. This comes from Najib, whose brothers. He said, "Get ten thousand dollars and buy yourself a pass. Buy your way in and get the hell out." When they went back to get the money, they were told, "I don't know whom, but it was basically said, hey, look, you leave the country, we're going to kill your family.'" We catch you and you're not leaving the country. We're just going to kill you. You want to lose your family. You want to take your chances. This is. And, and so Najib told his brothers, don't go to the airport. That's out of the, you know, take care of yourselves. Take it like a man. I, I mean, that's rather remarkable. But um, that shows you what the Afghans perception of the Taliban's, uh, uh, the new Taliban 2.0's intentions are. And it's a. Uh, and let us hope that that perception is wrong, but we don't have any control over that. Jeff, final thoughts? Yeah, I think we're going to see um, some type of attack every day until we're out of there. And uh, I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but I think we're going to see like a shotgun blast of 107 or 122 rockets or maybe some mortar fire. We're going to see other little iterations of stuff. And, um, and then we're going to be gone. And then I agree with Timmy that uh, it's going to be like, all these other things, other ways of either getting people out of the country or at first getting them into um, Panjshir or up there in uh, Baglan or out there where the in the places the Taliban doesn't own and maybe establish, um, you know, ways of pulling people out of those places to countries outside of Afghanistan. But I think they're going to mess with us, I think. And they're going to turn that gloat volume up because this is uh, after 20 years of having us knock the shit out of them. You know, now they're running it and we're, we're running out with our tails between our legs and they're going to make the most of that. Can I put in a safe round? I'm, I'm sorry, Will. I just want to add, there's a lot of money being raised to facilitate this by a lot of people, a lot of fraudulent uh, entities out there. I still, it's the nowhere, no one left behind.org website. That's the place if you want to donate money into this effort. Although nobody I know is in connection with Matt Zeller, that is the one legitimate place where you know your money is going to go to the Afghans uh, refugees. I just wanted to add that in. Sorry. Will, final thought? Um, I, I actually I learned a lot about the operation uh, in the last 24 hours, and it reminded me of something of being a battalion commander is that you know, combat should make you humble. Um, I, this, this thing, you know, I had a sense of its level of sophistication, but, uh, it's a lot more sophisticated th than I thought. And I'm a, I'm a hell of a less of an expert on it today than I was yesterday. That's for damn sure. Um, the other thing is, I think there's a degree of hubris in our, 
government uh, that's really sort of unconscionable. And, uh, and then I'll close with, I can't tell you how sick I am of Beltway Babel. Um, partners, allies, uh, the political techno speak of everyone is a good person and they're trying hard, et cetera. It just makes me want to vomit. Um, I don't need an overly emotional reaction right, to what happened yesterday by the leadership. But I just, I don't, there's this sort of saccharine sort of sickness reaction to it that just, I don't care for. And, uh, uh, you know, does, is there a person on earth that believes that we're going to expend all the resources required to hunt down the people that did this and make them pay? There's, there's not a person on earth that believes that. And so it's, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just horrible. I believe that. It's just horrible to me to think, of, you know, those Marines and that unit and likely that, that platoon, you know, no more than the one company. Uh, and then uh, families, et cetera. It just, it's just horrible. So that's it. Uh, just a few data points from, a briefing that's going on right now. Um, 12,500 people evacuated. Um, uh, the Major General, Army type, uh, who's the Deputy OPSO, Joint OPSO, uh, said they believe now there's only one explosion. Um, I, I think, you know, as these things go and haven't been a part of them, they probably uh, got some pretty good video um, of, of the event, not knowing, but tends to be the way these things work within 24 hours so they could say definitively so the so the 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 what is believed to be the second bomb blast that we you know said hey how could that many people get killed um maybe that's a was a small arms event and maybe those explosions rpg or something else i'm be interesting 51 u.s citizens have been evacuated 5100 so that would leave that would put the total at about 117,000 of which 5,000 were Americans and uh, um, 112,000 were our Afghan partners. Um, Final thought is that um, we're going to suffer more casualties. Um, We are in a very, very precarious situation at that airport. And as every day goes by and they're able to scope it out, find ways, move weapons, move people to use those weapons, um, you know, it's really hard to be, it's really difficult to be hard to kill when you're pinned down like that and and you're still trying to affect the evacuation of this i would hope that we would see the number of gates restricted right so that you'd get people out of the situation that those marines were in and and have maybe a couple gates that you know you can secure and whatever we can evacuate through those we'll do that but again if you watch that twitter video it it literally will make you vomit seeing these young marines doing the best they can in this humanitarian crisis, you know, and, and doing everything from pulling babies over walls, you know, to looking at papers to see if this person is legitimately qualified to get through this cordon. And uh, just break your heart. So with that said, um, uh, appreciate everybody's input today and uh, and thoughtfulness. And uh, thank you very much, guys. Yeah, have a good weekend, Mac. You guys take care. All right. 
That'll do it on this Thursday. Thanks for listening. Uh, most importantly is uh, keep those uh, families in your thoughts and prayers. And the other thing, somebody sent me an email and said, hey, I know this is a tough time for friends of mine. What do I do? Call them. Reach out. Say, hey, man, I'm thinking of you. I love you. If you need to talk to me, give me a call. If you see him, you don't have to say shit. Just give him a hug and squeeze the shit out of him. Let him know just by your physical presence that you give a shit. And then after you say, hey, man, you could talk to me, follow up on that. Okay, because one shot normally doesn't do it because a lot of people do that. So if you are concerned, don't be afraid to show it. Because yesterday straight up fucking sucked. So for a lot of people. But that'll do it on here on a uh, on a Thursday. I'm Mike McNamara, the Salt Marine Radio. Have a great day. We'll be back here tomorrow. We'll be back here Saturday and Sunday, um, doing what we do, which is trying to explain stuff and identify things that we don't understand, and then give you the benefit of some of our experiences. So and I'm lucky to have these guys who have a ton of it, and uh, and it's pretty varied. So um, enjoy having them on. Anyway, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.